Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's once again read verse 4 through the end of the chapter. As soon as I heard these words, the words that were given to Nehemiah, the report given there on the condition of Jerusalem, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of, of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's go once more to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we now come to your word and we trust that it will not return void. And we trust, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will do the work necessary to apply this word of truth individually to each heart that is here today. We trust, Lord, that you will be magnified and that you will be glorified. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. In the middle of a tough financial time for you or your family, you receive an unexpected phone call one day about a rather large bill, unforgotten, or forgotten in the stress of it all, and the other end of the line is telling you that that bill is now due immediately. Maybe it's a time at the end of the semester, and a class that you've struggled with for the entire semester is having its final exam in a couple days, and as you complete your preparations for that exam, a class that you really do need to pass and that you've worked hard at, but you haven't been able to get a hang on, it has, uh, you've already got those nervous butterfly feelings in the pit of your stomach as you await that exam that will be handed to you. Maybe it's a, a day that you look at the calendar And you notice that the social events are looming large in the near future. And you know that as that season ramps up and you're out and about and doing different things with your family, that the pressure on your family and on yourself and where you place your priorities is going to really increase. Or maybe it's a difficult season of health for a friend of yours or a loved one or maybe your own self that is hanging on a little longer than expected, a little longer than desired. Maybe even a little longer than 
you think you might be able to endure. Maybe it's the third time in a week you have been tempted and you've given in to that temptation and fallen into sin in an area that you so desperately want to grow stronger in. And now, maybe today or another day, you sit and you feel so ashamed and heavy-hearted over that sin. Maybe it's your child once again sinned against you or lied to you. Or maybe they're not adhering or rejecting even the work of God in their life and here you are deeply burdened about them. The feelings in every one of the scenarios that accompany every one of the scenarios I just gave or those that are like them are addressed in Nehemiah chapter 1 today. These are very much the same feelings that Nehemiah has and we're going to be able to see this morning how he deals with them and be able to learn from them as well. We have two questions that ultimately face our study this morning. Number one, how should I respond when the unexpected, often difficult situations in life crop up? When the need for success in endeavor lies before me? When a challenge or trial looms large in my life? When I'm burdened by sin? Probably a more succinct way of putting that question would be, what do I do when my heart is heavy? When I'm tempted to worry or fear, or fret, because I realize that I have little to no control over something that has the potential, or maybe even is now, hurting me, or ones that I love. That's the first question. The second one is, closely closely follows that one. It is, what is communicated to the world around me, and how I ultimately respond to these type of situations. And maybe even more importantly is, What is communicated about God and how I ultimately respond to these situations? In Nehemiah's prayer, we had the answer to both of those questions this morning. And it's in Nehemiah's time of difficulty that we can both closely relate and learn and how he responded, but ultimately seeing the grace that God has for us and how in those type of situations. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm very much like Nehemiah. In my weakness and frailty, I had the tendency to anguish and fret and be heavy-hearted about whether it's unexpected news, whether it's the burden of sin. And I'm often left reminded of my inability and inadequacy to affect any change upon a situation. And I think very much so that that feeling is natural to all of us. But it is the question of what we do with that feeling, where we go, what we say, what we think, that will differentiate between sin or God being magnified to the world around me and how I respond to those situations by His grace. Whether I respond as everyone else does or whether I respond differently because of His grace than the norm. In Nehemiah 5, verse 11, Nehemiah's prayer We have five steps in sequence that are laid out for us as a means of grace to apply when facing really anything in life, but especially uh, the more difficult situations of life. And I would say that every one of us today are involved in some or have an ongoing uh, situation, and it differs for every single person. It differs in degrees of difficulty. It differs in degrees of publicity, who knows and who doesn't. And so each one of us have something that we are facing, large or small, 
that the scripture through the word this morning addresses and, and so neatly fits each one of our individual um, circumstances, the aspects that are unique to those situations. Verse 5, verse 11, we have these five steps and I'll read them to you and then by way of uh, outline and by way of application we'll work through them. The five of them are recognize, repent, remember, rejoice, react. If you have a pen and paper, write those down. Recognize, repent, remember, rejoice, react. Let's look at number one, recognize. Look with me at verse five in your Bibles there if you have them open. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let's first of all recognize this morning that the, the instinctive response of the Christian should be prayer. Prayer should be the Christian's instinctive response to any and all situations. As a little child might call out for their mommy or their daddy when hurt or when hungry or when needing comfort. So our instinctive response as a Christian to really any situation should be Abba, Father. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us as much, pray without ceasing. J.C. Ryle has an important thought on prayer that helps us in this. He said, seek every day to have closer communion with him who is your friend and to know more of his grace and power. True Christianity is not merely believing a certain set of dry, abstract propositions. It is to live in daily, personal communication with an actual living person, Jesus Christ. But even more important than recognizing what our instinctive response should be as a Christian, we need to recognize to whom we are praying, to whom we are calling out. Look, look with me at verse 5 again. Notice how Nehemiah describes God. O Lord God of heaven, he's recognizing God's sovereignty, his lordship, his, his control over all things as he identifies him there in heaven. He notes his omnipotence when he declares his greatness and follows that up with calling him awesome. In today's world, we we call everything from frosted flakes to football to motorcycles to uh, exciting experiences great and awesome. And then we, we, we wrongfully take the feelings that we contribute to those uh, inferior things and, and then we apply that feeling to what it must be like to be before the God of the universe. Dictionary definition of awesome helps us. It says it's causing, awesome meaning causing feelings of fear and wonder, causing feelings of all extremely good. And, and we normally take the third meaning, extremely good, and we apply it. Rather than the primary meaning, causing feelings of fear and wonder to how we relate to God. And the God of the universe is so great and awesome. Really, there is nothing that outside of him that should even be considered as great and awesome. Michael W. Smith's song, Above all, above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. That is 
the great and awesome God that Nehemiah and we pray to. We must recognize that the nature of the God that we have the privilege by his grace to commune with every day is this God, this great and awesome God. We have that grace, that ability to pray and commune with him. But notice Nehemiah goes on. Look with me again in verse 5. This great and awesome God who keeps covenant with us. Not only is he great and awesome, he is keeping covenant with us. A God who never ever fails in dealing with us in faithfulness. And you and I daily break that covenant with him. And we could come before him 10,000 upon 10,000 times confessing sin, thereby declaring our unfaithfulness and breaking covenant with him. And he's never once broken it with us and never once will even be tempted to do so. He is continually, unwearily, unwavering, steadfastly dealing with us in love. That's amazing. We daily break that and he never does. Now notice again in verse 5, He's keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Something that I have no ability to do. I'm completely unable in my own flesh to love him and keep his commandment. And yet his grace is daily provided for me to not only love him, but to then give me the ability to do his will. He's giving us He has given me, he's given you the love for him that we would never have if he did not freely give it to us. And this is is in a succinct form, the gospel. And this is to whom, this God is the one to whom we have the ability, moment by moment, kept in his love, moment by moment, with life from above, to daily commune with in prayer, to daily have the privilege of communing with in prayer. Prayer is simply and yet magnificently communication with the God of the universe that is empowered by his grace as a blessing to you and me to remind us of his grace in everyday life, the grace that was purchased for once and for all on the cross of Christ. Verse five, we have step one in Nehemiah's prayer and how to respond as Christians. We are to recognize that prayer should be our first response and we are to then recognize to whom we are praying. Step two, we find in verse six and verse seven, recognize is number one. Number two is repent. Repent, verse six and seven. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Noah Webster gives us a a good definition and puts it correctly of the meaning of repentance. Repentance is the relinquishment of any practice from the conviction that it has offended God. 
Let me say that again. Repentance is the relinquishment of any practice from the, convic- from the conviction, and I would add from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that it has offended God. And repentance in today's culture is, is not popular at all. The salvation message preached in the normal today would be mainly one of easy believism, easy believism, namely just you believe and you will be saved when in fact scripture after scripture after scripture has repentance as a necessity for salvation. And let me, let me offer some of those scriptures. Consider a few of these. Jesus Christ told us in Luke 24, 45 through 47, then he opened their mouths, opened their minds, excuse me, to understand the scriptures and he said to them, This is Christ. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. John the Baptist in Luke 3, verse 3 and verse 8, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, bear fruits and keeping with repentance. We see in the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthian church speaking of repentance as a way of life, a continual way of life for the believer. For godly grief, 2 Corinthians 7.10, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas God, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 25 on how a pastor should deal with opponents to the work of the gospel. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. One more, by from Peter. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Did you catch that? The heart of God is for his chosen ones to come to repentance. Now, let, let me be clear. I'm in no way uh, proclaiming a, a doctrine or a, a truth or a teaching of works-based salvation as if uh, grace is not involved and you're to do a lot of work. No, what I'm saying is that as God gives us the grace and opens our eyes to understand and believe in his son Jesus Christ alone for salvation, there is going to be a, a, a reaction And that reaction should be repentance. That's the fruit of the belief in Christ. And if the fruit is not there, then check the tree. Noah Webster, reading it again, put it correctly. Repentance is the relinquishment of any practice from a conviction that it has offended God. And that should be a daily, continual thing on our part, empowered by His grace. And the question arises for me and probably does for you, well, then what do I repent of? We know repent of, I'm supposed to repent of sin, but here you're proclaiming this should be something that should be continual, and yet sometimes I sit down to pray and I can't think of anything that I've done wrong, and how am I supposed to repent of, just start naming things? And I would tell you to trust that the Holy Spirit will show you sin in your life. And he will use the word, the word of God, whether it's written on your heart, whether it's memorized and laid upon your heart, stored away there, whether it's being preached, whether you hear it on the radio, whether you read it in the Bible. And if, if you or me are not being as faithful to the word as we should be in his love, 
in his constraining love, which we see in 2 Corinthians 5, he will do what is necessary to bring us to the point where we're back to the word to see where that sin is and what we must do to repent of it. Repentance is simply signaling a heart change that indicates that I am resolved to submit to God's sovereignty in my life rather than my own desires. We recognize first and then we repent. We submit ourselves to God's ways, not our own. The message of repentance is a minority to the majority of the message of grace in today's culture and we've got to continually fight the battle when we go to read scripture to, uh, to place the appropriate weight on different aspects of scripture as scripture places appropriate weight on different aspects of scripture. We're, we're seeking to mirror, mirror the appropriate weight there. There seems to be a thought about grace these days that goes to something like this when, when concerning questioning whether I should do or not do something. And this might be some of the thought and you may have heard this. Well, I'm a Christian, and what I'm seeking to do, that I'm not sure about, feels good. And since I'm under grace, I will uh, worry about the consequences of whatever I'm going to do at a later time, if there's going to be any consequences at all, because, hey, I'm under grace. So there may not be any consequences. As if to say that God's grace absolves us from any discipline or consequences of sin, blanketing us, allowing us to do whatever we would like to do when it comes to the questionables, as long as the scales of how it feels weigh out in my favor. This feels good, therefore it must be right. Instead of, and the opposite, what we should do is humbly Seeking the Lord, going first to the word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit in accordance with scripture and the the process set forth therein to lead us and guide us in the way rather than basing it upon what what feels good to us. And and we're not not to fall prey uh, to this this false line of thinking about grace. And, and And when we're doing that, we're simply treating God's grace very cheaply. The hand of discipline from an almighty God, though loving, is painful and meant to affect change by the appropriate means necessary. Consider that when you're seeking to know what to do with the grace God has given you. Like Nehemiah, we must always be repenting. Repenting of the same thing that Nehemiah did. Essentially, you see here in verse 7, not following God's ways. Note, he says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments. Verse seven, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant, moment, your servant Moses. Always, we're, we're to be always seeking to relinquish any practice uh, from conviction by the Holy Spirit that we know is offending God and repenting of not remaining faithful to the work and call of the redeemed, which is, which is simply to glorify God by magnifying his grace and living in humble, loving submission to his ways. We magnify God's grace when we are humbly submitted to his ways. Well, the, the question then comes from this is, are you telling me that if I can just find 
the sin that is causing all these life's difficulties and search for it enough till I get it, figure out which one it is, repent of it, confess it, repent of it. All these feelings, these difficulties, these trials that I'm experiencing, these burdens, these, this heavy heartedness will just flow on down the tracks. Are you telling me my sin is causing that and if I could just find the, the right sin, it would all go away? Well, I'm gonna say yes and I'm gonna say no. Because in a sense, all of the challenges and difficulties of this life are a result of the fall and the consequences that we experience every day are the result of that. So in a sense, yes. But we've got to be very careful in thinking that prayer is just like a slot machine that if we can just pull it enough times and yank it hard enough that eventually we'll get all of the things lined up just in our favor and we can get what we want out of this. Rather... Than, than realizing that as a believer, I have all the favor of God already upon me and there is nothing I can do now or not do that will remove his favor from me. So we then are seeking to repent of sin, not in order to remove the difficulties of life, but in order that we might be conformed to his image and walk in closer fellowship with him. A relationship marked by by love irregardless of the circumstances because that's what he did for us he loved us and loves us still irregardless of the circumstances if he took the circumstances into account I would not be lovely here's this guy 10,000 upon 10,000 times coming to me and confessing I mean how unfaithful can Cody possibly be look this is just too much the circumstances are too much here I've got to break this but no, irregardless, he loves me. And that's how we are to reciprocate his love to us, to, to him. Recognize, repent is number two. The third step in how we're to respond, and these are in order, would be remember. Number three is remember. Look with me at verse eight. And that's where the, the word that begins these these two verses here, two or three verses in eight through 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Verse nine, but if you return to me, keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them, bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. Verse 10, there are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah is calling God to remember, to remember his promises. But, but Nehemiah knows as well as you and I do that God need not remember because he never forgets. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. The things of the past, the things of the present, the things of the future, he's well acquainted with them and he set them in place. Nehemiah is, as we are to do, is reminding himself by way of prayer of God's promises. And we are commanded throughout scripture to remember the works of God. A few scriptures, Psalm 42, verse six, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Ermin, from Mount Mazar. The promises of God, we are to remember. Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord, yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Psalm 105.5, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Psalm 137.6, notice this, 
The psalmist here is saying, don't let me speak unless I remember first. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you and if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Psalm 143, 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. Remember God's redemptive work in your life as Nehemiah did. And Nehemiah is, is, is hearkening back to all the way to the book of Genesis when God gave promises that, his, that he, would, he would keep his people. And the people rebelled, as we know in, the, in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. And, and he scattered them in order that they might do what he asked them to do, which is go into all the world. And he will one day bring us all back together, every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are to remember, remember, and remember again the promises of God. And as we do so in prayer, especially, it is going to bolster and strengthen our faith. Recognize, repent, remember. Number four is rejoice. Look with me at verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight there's the rejoicing to fear your name delight to fear your name after uh, you have recognized his splendor after you have repented of, of sin that has brought, been brought to your mind brought to your heart by the Holy Spirit after you have remembered his kind and loving work in your life we are to rejoice we are to rejoice evermore we are to rejoice in the work of God we are to rejoice in the grace that has been afforded to us. We are to rejoice in the blessing of walking daily, communing with the Father, the King, the Creator of the universe. And when we, when we pray in this way, when we get this order correct, and when we seek Him, when it comes to the difficult situations of life, though the circumstances may not change at that exact moment as we so often desire that they would, they, they may not change at all for some time. But your heart is ready to rejoice because it's been recalibrated through, through prayer. Matthew Henry, commenting on 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, notes this. The way to rejoice evermore is to pray without ceasing. We should rejoice more if we prayed more. We should keep up stated times for prayer and continue in instant prayer. We should pray always and not faint. Pray without weariness and continue in prayer till we come to that world, meaning heaven, where prayer shall be swallowed up in praise. One day there's not going to need to be any more praying and we will only praise. But we are not to grow weary now in praying until our hearts are overflowing with praise. And we should do that. And that takes some time to pray until our hearts are overflowing with praise. But we should rejoice at the work of God. We should, we should remember, though, that the tears may accompany the rejoicing. Because we, we, we have Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that gives us that anomaly of the Christian life, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So those things are accompanied here on this side of heaven finally we have our closing point we have recognize repent remember 
rejoice and react. React. Uh, The normal fleshly response to difficult situations in life, to burdens of the heart, is not to recognize God. It's not to repent. It is not to remember His promises. It's not to rejoice in His goodness. Actually, typically, the response would probably be to react in whatever means available to as quickly as possible uh, relieve that burden or that difficult time. Whatever means is available to you and your, your imagination could fill in the blank of whatever that may be. But that's typically the response. We're not going to go down this list that Nehemiah gives us or that scene here in Nehemiah. We're going to react. Now, it is here at this point, this fifth point, that I think Christians have the ability to most magnify God's grace and how we atypically respond. Instead of typically responding the way our flesh would, we respond differently. And that's where I think in the majority we have the best opportunity to reflect the glory and magnificence of God's grace. Because it's in the, it's in the difficult times that oftentimes it's more highlighted on how we respond differently. And I think the biggest difference between Christians and really non-Christians when it comes to these difficult times in life is at the point where they react. Non-Christians react at the beginning. Christians, by God's magnificent grace, react at the end. But what do I mean by this word react? Because in a sense, we are reacting when we, when we recognize what we are to do. Let me just uh, note a little, bit, a little bit of a difference in what I'm pointing at, and that's in verse 11. Look with me at verse 11 in Nehemiah 1. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and, and this is where I'm going with this word react, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. See, after Nehemiah gets his heart set aright and prepared to react accordingly to the situation he, he faces, he, he then, he reacts. Simply put, he, he's taking the logical next step. He's ready to take action if there's any action to be taken. And there's times in our lives and there's times in the difficulties or whatever you may be going through in your own personal life or family that um, you are to pray and wait upon the Lord. And there's also times, though, that after praying, there is a clear step you should take. And if you have prepared your heart aright, in faith, boldly take that step. It may be a small one, it may be a large one. But if there is a step to be taken, it will be very logical. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, which we see at the very end of chapter 1. He has access and the ability to act on behalf of those with whom uh, he is most burdened. And we're going to see next week that he does just that. He acts upon the logical step that is to be taken. Robert Morgan, in his book, The Red Sea Rules, gives us some sound advice. He says, when unsure, just take the logical next step by faith. In terms of when you're not sure what to do next, when it comes to a difficult season, and his book is written about, there they are, Moses and the people standing before the Red Sea. What do you do now? Bearing down, enemies are bearing down behind us. What are we going to do? 
God parts the Red Sea. What's the logical next step? Step forward. There may be no logical next step in the circumstance God has given you. But there may be, and I would encourage you to not be afraid by faith to take it. But, but in that taking, let, me, let us remind ourselves that it's reacting is the fifth point. And there's four steps that come before that that prepare the heart for that reacting. We've got that progression there. And God prepared Nehemiah for the work Nehemiah would then plan to do and step out in doing. Preparation comes before planning. And that's all throughout Scripture. That God delights to use those who he has well prepared for his work. And we've got to first set our hearts aright before we then seek the path where to walk. I would encourage you... Uh, this evening, this afternoon, as you're taking a quiet day to look at Proverbs 16, 1 through 7 by way of reinforcement at this point. It's very clear there in Proverbs 16 that God directs the steps and he delights to you direct the steps of those who have, by his ways, prepared their hearts for the work he has for them. In closing, I want to read uh, two definitions that Noah Webster in his 1828 dictionary give us on the words restore and reform. As we close out Nehemiah. Restore, he says, is to return to a person a specific thing which he has lost or which has been taken from him and unjustly detained. To restore to a person a specific thing which he has lost or which has been taken from him and unjustly detained. Restore. Reform is to change from worse to better, to amend, to correct. To change from worse to better to amend, to correct. In Nehemiah, and especially here in Nehemiah, setting, Nehemiah 1, setting up this study, we see that God is in the business of restoration and even more importantly, reformation. In the man in Nehemiah, we have a picture of Christ who acts on behalf of those who are unable in their own ability to act by going first to the God of the universe, going before the Father, and we will see that picture as he goes before the King, the one who has the ability and the power to effect change is necessary in order for there to be a restoration of relationship for the purpose of reformation to the likeness of Christ for the glory of God. That's what God is seeking to do in you and me. And he's showing us this through the book of Nehemiah. He's not just restoring to us for those who wonder as the children of Israel did and, and is implicated there in Jerusalem's um, where they're at and, and how things are going there. He's not just simply seeking to restore us to that point if we're lost and we're wandering down past we shouldn't. He's not simply seeking to restore. He's seeking to then move from that restoring to the Reformation to a more closer walk with him, a more like-mindedness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are to remember that God often brings circumstances and situations into our lives to remind us of his power, our weakness, and to prepare us through humility for his work. So if you're burdened, loaded down with a load of 
care or sin today, I encourage you and implore you to take it to Christ because there he will restore and reform. Nehemiah did this and this should be our natural response as well. And though it is the unnatural response of the flesh to do it, we are to be reminded and we've been, we've been reminded and trust through the word this morning that it should be the natural response of the Christian. And if you're sitting here today and it's not your natural response now or hasn't been for a time, I encourage you, be drawn back to the natural response of the Christian through the power of the word of God this morning and showing us that in these, in these difficult seasons, whether large or small, whatever they may be, as they apply to you, as they are unique to your life, we are to recognize God. We are to go to him in repentance continually. That should be the, the fruit of our lives, bearing fruits in keeping with repentance, remembering, recognizing him, uh, repenting, remembering, rejoicing, and then reacting accordingly to what he has before us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have, we have participated this morning in a supernatural work. The living word of God being proclaimed through an unworthy individual that you then take by the power of the Holy Spirit and conform and apply to the uniqueness of each one of our hearts. And Father, I trust and pray that you have done that work this morning and that it will yield the results you have planned. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, your living word, that is not some dry and dusty old story, but is applicable today. And you, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had this story given to us, not just as a picture of the gospel through Nehemiah, as a picture of Christ, but also that we could see uh, in Nehemiah the same feelings and emotions that we experience on a day-to-day basis and then what to do with them. And we're reminded that we're to take them to you. Oh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for not leaving us to our own devices, but daily by your steadfast love and grace, drawing us conforming us, molding us, shaping us into the image of your Son that your glory, your grace might be most magnified to the world around us. And Father, I pray that um, our prayer lives would exponentially increase in this coming year, 2015, And we will be more prepared to walk out and live out our lives in a way that would be pleasing to you because it's a outworking. It's a sign. It's the litmus test of what we truly believe and are doing in our own private devotional lives, our own private thoughts. That we'd be more glorifying to you because we're first seeking you and that would be evidenced 
in how we are walking out our lives. Oh, Father, we thank you for the mor- this morning and the opportunity to have uh, learned from you and your word. And we ask and pray now, Lord, that as we move to a time of corporate prayer, you might uh, draw our hearts closer to you and remembering your promises and repentance as necessary in rejoicing and preparing us, Lord, for going out into this world throughout these next six days and reacting to the world around us in a way that would be most glorifying to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.